Well, good morning, Cross. How are we? That's a little less lively than I thought. That's okay. That's okay. That's on me. All right. Um, my name is Alex Holroyd. I serve as an elder here at Cross. Um, and as Taylor said, a community group leader, which is always fun to do a community group after you, you get up here and talk. You're like, so what stood out? Right? This is a weird, I don't know how Taylor does it. Um, but if you're new here, we are going through uh, the book of James. And one thing we love to do at Cross is we like to just kind of go through a book of the Bible and we go through verse by verse and we just kind of ask the question, what does this say about God and what does this have to do with me? And so we've been going through the book of James, which I love the book of James. It's kind of like the Proverbs of the New Testament. In fact, I think if Proverbs and the Sermon on the Mount had a baby, James is the offspring. Right? Like, it just makes sense. It has these, like, little nuggets. Um, and because for me, like, I didn't grow up going to church, and I have a church background, and so I came to know the Lord through this thing called Young Life. And when I met the Lord, I didn't know what to do. And someone was like, you should have a quiet time. And I was like, I don't know what that means. What does a quiet time mean? Like, you should just read your Bible. And so I did what every Christian does. I just start in Genesis. And I'm like, this is strange. Um, <laughs> help explain this to me. Um, but in James, he kind of lays it out very practically. He's like, do you lack wisdom? you should ask for help and he'll give it to you. Maybe when you get in fights, you should be, I love this one, you should be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry. I mean, that's just worth the whole book right there. Like if we just did that, it would solve a lot of quarrels and a lot of fighting, right? Um, but I love it because it has these little bit of like nuggets for us. And so we're gonna be in James chapter four, one through 12. And if you're a type A person and you love order, here's the order. I think, I think James kind of lays it out. He kind of addresses there's a problem there's a cause of the problem. And when there's a cause, there's an effect. So there's an effect, it affects somebody, right? There's a problem, there's a cause and effect. Praise the Lord, there's a solution. And then there's an application. And if you're a type B, you're like, I don't like those things, don't worry, we're gonna go like this to get to all those places. Um, so if you will, we're gonna dive in to James 4, verse one. And it says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? Your passions are at war with you. All right, the problem's real simple. There's fighting and there's quarreling amongst Christians because they were different back then um, than we are now, right? And uh, so there's the joke. And, um, and so thank you. But they're fighting and they're quarreling with one another. And, and this is not a good look. It's not a good look for the people of God to be fighting and quarreling. But there's a more important thing that's at, that's at stake here. And it's this that when brothers and sisters in Christ are fighting and quarreling with one another, what is hindered is the gospel message. Uh, the gospel witness, the gospel message is hindered when brothers and sisters are fighting with one another. It's why one of the last things Jesus tells his disciples after he washes their feet in John 13, he says this, John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you you are also to love one another. And here it is. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. He is going and saying, you want to know how this story gets out, the story of the good news gets out by the way you love one another. That the outside world is going to go, something's different about those people. Look at the way they care for one another. And so the first point of the problem is the greatest witness to the gospel is Christians loving one another. And the greatest obstacle to the gospel as Christians fighting with one another. Uh, I, I told you I work for this organization called Young Life. And so we were interviewing some people uh, on the phone just to kind of do a first interview. And this kid was from Clemson. Um, 
And uh, yep, I knew that was going to happen. And uh, and I was getting to, we we're just talking to him, getting to know his story. And he tells a story that he grew up in foster care, and he grew up in kind of a boy's home. And uh, when he was in high school, he wanted to do track and field, uh, but because he didn't have a ride, he couldn't really do that. And so they were looking for any foster parents that would bring in a teenager just to drive them, because it's like impossible to find people who are willing to bring in teenagers in foster care, which is another sermon for another day. Um, but. Uh, a, a family stepped up to the plate and said, hey, we're willing to drive him to and from the school so he can do track and field. And um, they kind of bonded and, and got to have this relationship. This family was only kind of accepting people from like zero to four years because that's kind of what their house can do. And after getting to know um, him, they said, actually, we, we would love for you to come to our house. Like, can you just stay with us? Would you be with us? And of course, he's like, I'm in, right? Like, Yes. Um, and they kind of said, hey, there's only one thing we ask. Like, we, we are the family. We just go to church every Sunday. We just come with us. Now, they know he, he's Muslim um, by, um, from his family background. So he's Muslim. So he says, yeah, I'll, I'll go. And they go, you don't have to believe anything. We just said, just come with us because that's what we do as a family. And he said, so I went. And I made sure I wouldn't listen to anything the preacher said. And I would just play on my phone. But I went. He's like, I went. But something happened. And he said, the, he's like, I didn't listen to what the preacher said still. <laughs> um, but the way people loved me. He said, people would ask what my name is. Nobody would ask my name. Nobody cared to know. But in that church, they wanted to know my name. They wanted to know my story. They wanted to help serve. They wanted to help me drive to practices. They cared for me. And he said, through that, I started to listen. The way we love one another, it's the greatest witness to the gospel. And it's why James is going, hey, there's fighting and there's quarreling among you. We need to address this. Okay, so what causes this problem? What causes fighting and quarreling? Let's go back. James 1, we'll call it 1B um, through 3. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you, uh, you desire and don't have, so you murder. You covet and you can't obtain, so you fight. You quarrel and you don't have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly and spend it on your passions. I don't know if you heard this over and over again, but he said, you, 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 you. All right, so um, hear me. When you're listening today, there's going to be a part of you that goes, you know, so-and-so needs to hear this sermon. No, (laughs) you do. I do. Us together need to hear whatever James has for us. It's not a, if that thought comes into your mind, just throw it out. And it's probably the Holy Spirit going, me, I need to hear this. That's why he's saying, you, you, you. When he's saying, who's the problem? You are. I am. We are the problem. G.K. Chesterton, a famous, famous um, English writer back in the 1900s. I still don't know how to say this. It was like from 1900 to like 1950. Is that the 20th century or is that the 1900s? I don't know. It's kind of like reversing back a trailer. It's like if you go right, it goes left. But it was from the 19 to 1950. That's when he was alive. Um, but the London Times asked this question. They asked some people to write in the answers. And the question was simple is, what is wrong with the world today? And G.K. Chesterton is kind of famous for um, writing this little thing back to them. He said, dear sir, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. What's the problem with the world? It's me. It's you. It's us. Another famous lyricist, Taylor Swift, once said, "Um, hi, it's me. I'm the problem. It's me. All right. So just as we're hearing today, I want us to hear James is coming at us going, we are the problem. It's not Johnny. 
all right? Or whoever the made up name is that you're thinking of. It's, it's me. But here's the question. Um, what causes me to do this? Like what causes me um, to want something so bad that, I, that I'm willing? He's not really talking about murdering people. I mean, I don't think that's happening. I don't think he's like, you want something. And brothers and sisters, you're just killing each other. But he's going back to the Sermon on the Mount, like you are hating one another for this. And it's these, these passions, these desires that are in our heart and they're waging war. And all of us experience this. And I'll, and I'll prove it to you. Now, we're in church, so you can't lie. All right, so don't do that. Um, the eight o'clock was really good, so we're gonna test you guys. Uh, I'm gonna need you to raise your hand. Raise your hand if this is true. Raise your hand if you've done something that you knew was wrong, but you did it anyway, right? Look at this. I'm the problem. It's me, right? Like that's, just again, we're just hitting that. But here's the reason. Because we have these desires that are waging war against us. And I had a good friend. His name was Pat Goodman. He really opened my eyes. He was on Young Life staff for 40 plus years in the Baltimore area. And he helped me understand this idea of the waging war desires in me. And he talked about, um, he would go to this place called the Helping Up Mission in Baltimore. Great, great organization that would help people who've kind of um, thrown their lives a little bit into addiction with like alcohol, sex, or drugs. They've kind of run um, the gambit of, do of doing that. And he told me that whenever he meets with them for the first time, like a new group, he asks this simple question. He says, why are you here? And then the answer is exactly what you think the answers would be. Drugs, sex, alcohol. Like that, that's why I'm in this room. And he said, no, no, no. I didn't ask what you did. I asked, why are you here? He said, here's a better way of asking the question. Why did you do the things that you did? And he said, the answers were fascinating. They're always fascinating. They go, I just felt lonely. Um, I just wanted to be a part of something. I just wanted to feel comfort. Like my life was out of control. And if I just did this thing, it just, it felt more comfortable. I wanted to feel safe. Some of it's like, I just wanted to feel significant. I wanted to feel like I was more than who I was. And so the, the realization is it wasn't these out, drugs, sex, alcohol. It wasn't those things that got you here. It's that you had these desires, that, and he kind of named these three, of belonging, of significance, and security. And those are good desires. I would say they're God-given desires that you go to crazy places to get them met. Uh, Ecclesiastes 3.11 would say, God put eternity into the hearts of man. He put eternity. We have these infinite desires that are in us, a desire to belong, a desire to feel safe, a desire to feel like I'm, I'm, I'm worth something. And what happens is we go to things other than God to get those needs met. This is where, if you ever heard this language before, that I have a God-shaped hole in my heart, this is where that comes from. This is that language. This is the idea that there is an infinite desire that I go to finite places to get it met. Uh, Jeremiah 2.13 is a fascinating verse. It says this, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they've dug out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns, broken wells that can hold no water. God's going, here's what you've done. I, I'm offering you water. I'm offering you life. And you're saying, nah, I'm good. I want to go to this broken cistern. I want to do it myself. I want to do it my own way. And it doesn't work. It's why, like, if we go, if I just marry the right person, then it would, it would solve this problem in my heart to belong. And all of us married people said, it won't, right? Or for our friends that are in high school, you're going, like, if I just, if I just get into the right college, 
then I'd feel more significant, right? Because then I, I could say, I went to this college. It won't, it won't solve it. Or if I just made enough money to just be completely safe, I can retire at 40 and just, that'd be awesome. I got to retire at 40 and just, you know, live my life. It won't. Um, I don't know if you've watched Netflix. I've heard about it. Um, and uh, there's a documentary called The Untold Story of Johnny Football. I love college football. I loved watching Johnny football. He was this crazy dude. Uh, he won the Heisman. Um, he got in trouble for like selling autographs back when you couldn't pay players, but now you can. That's a separate story. Um, but one thing that's really interesting in that documentary I love, it says he was at Cleveland um, and, he, and he said this in the documentary. He said, I had all the money I could ever want. I was a first round draft pick. I had the Heisman. So I had significance, right? He said, I had all the money, I had all the accolades I could want. I had, I had all um, the relationships uh, that I would want. And then he said this, I've never felt more empty in my life. Why? Because he's going to finite things to fill infinite desires. And all of us are doing that. No matter what all of us are going, oh, if I just had this, then life would be better. And God is going, that's not the case. Um, and then you read into it. Rattery says that. He says, you ask and you do not receive. You have, um, sorry, you do not have because you do not ask. And then he says, and you ask but don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on, um, on your passions. So if I just say, what causes fights and quarrels among you? It's the fact that we are going to other things than God to get our needs met. But what is the cause behind the cause is this, pride. It's the same pride that snuck into the garden that says, you can be your own Lord and Savior. You can be your own God. You are the own person who knows how to rule your life. And he says, you have not because you ask not. Why is a, pride, a, proud for person, a pride person, like prideful person, um, why, why don't they ask for help? Because they have pride, right? Like that's the reason. They're not asking God for help because they go, I got this, I got this. But then what about the other person who goes, you ask, but you don't receive because you ask wrongly. Again, it's pride. You're going, oh God, if you just gave me this, I know this is the answer to life. And so if you just give it to me and God goes, I love you. No, I'm not giving you that, All right? It's just like your kids when it's in the morning. They're like, can I have candy? You're like, no, here's a cinnamon roll. Um, but, <laughs> it's weird how we do that. But... Um, here, here's, here's a quote that haunted me. I'm going to throw it out there and it can haunt you a little bit now. Uh, John Piper said this. He said, if you could have heaven and have everything you want in heaven, the people, the things, everything you want in heaven, but you don't get Jesus, would you want it? And then he said this, the answer to that question determines whether you love Jesus or you love his things. And that has haunted me because the, the, the reality of my, my sinful heart is I want his things. Why? Because I'm prideful and I think I know the way to life. But Jesus says in John 10, 10, I have come to give you life and life to the full. Come to me. I alone know. Now, here's the thing. If that's the cause, what's the effect? More importantly, who does this affect? And so we're going to dive into um, James 4, uh, 4 through 5. He says, you adulterous people. The Greek word there is you adulteresses. So he's saying, all of us, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously 
over the spirit that has made to dwell in us. It's interesting. He says, you adulterous people. Now hear me. That sounds bad. And it is. But, but there's some goodness in hearing it that way too. Because here's what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, you disobedient subjects. Because if he said that, then God is relating us in the way a king relates to his people. Right? And that's very law-based. Because what motivates you to uphold the law? Fear. Fear of punishment. Like, why do I drive the speed limit? Because I don't want to get a ticket or I don't want to pay this. Is it because my heart longs to be obedient to the government? Um, that's not a political statement? It's, no, like my heart doesn't, right? Because it's, it's sinful in that because the only thing I'm worried about is, is, is the fear of punishment. And that's the only way that can operate. But what here, here's what God says. God says this, or James says this, you adulterous people. Now, what image does that convey? A marriage. It's completely different when it's a relationship because what motivates you to serve your spouse? Love. I hope it is. I hope you're not worried about the wrath of your spouse if you don't do the dishes. If so, we have counseling. It's a great place to go to. Um, we've all been there before. It's, you know, but it's love. You know, I, I give this example of um, my wife, Allie, and I, we, we've been married for 13 years. Um, and I, I, very early on, whenever we would travel somewhere or she would go somewhere and we come home, I realized um, that she would love the house. Like her love language is gifts of service or acts of service. And she would love the house just to be clean. That wasn't my love language. And so when we got home, I'm like, I don't care. And it can be a mess and that's fine with me. But when she comes home and it's not that, it's not that she's angry with me. She's just hurt. You know, it's like, oh, I wish, I wish it was okay. And so I've learned that. And I go, you know, the best way to love her well is that when she goes out of town, me and the kids, we're going to clean the house. Now, do I love cleaning the house? No, I do not. But do I love my wife? Absolutely. There's, uh, have you ever watched the show, This Is Us? Uh, I'll spoil it for you. Um, but uh, great show. It makes you cry. If you don't like to cry, I don't. It still makes you cry. Um, but the whole story is like the dad passes away. That's in the first episode, so you just know that. Um, but the question is how? Like how does he, you know? And spoiler alert, but it makes the point. Um, he, there's a fire, and he goes back into the house to save the dog. And I remember being so mad that he would go back in the house to save a dog and leave his wife with you know three kids and a mortgage. I was like, that was a bad decision by you. Um, but then he won me over by this comment. He gets to the doctor, and the doctor said, "Whoa." He survived the fire, but he has like lung, like, you know, black smoke in his lungs. And they say, um, man, you must have really loved that dog. And he said, I love the girl who loved the dog. That is what it means to serve your spouse. That is what God is asking of us. Do you love me? In fact, Jesus would say it multiple times um, in this marriage relationship. He would say it in John 14, 15, 14, 21, 14.23, John 15.10, and John 15.12. It's all the same thing. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. Jesus is going, you want to know what my love language is? Will you obey me? Not because I'm a ruthless king, but I'm a, I'm a husband who loves you and cares for you. And then that last verse, it says in John 15.12, he even explains what his command is. Hear this. It couldn't be more obvious. My command is this. All right, that's helpful. Love one another as I have loved you. 
Love one another as I have loved you. He's trying to say it over and over again. Love one another. So now we can see what happens um, when we don't do this. Who does it affect? The heart of God. When we turn to our own desires, our own passion, who does it affect? The heart of God. I'd say the greatest motivational factor is not the fear of punishment, not the fear of hell. It's the heart of God. That's why when you were kids growing up and your dad says or mom says, hey, like you're hoping they punish you and they just say, mm, I'm just disappointed. And you're like, oh, don't do it, right? Because you're hurting your parents' heart. It's the worst. You're like, just spank me or something, right? Like, don't do that. Take my car away. Do something. But no, it's disappointment. So what, who does this affect? Who does it affect when we turn our backs? It affects the heart of God. Because the fear of punishment never really works. And we did this as Christians, and maybe we were, some of you guys might have been a part of this, and that's okay. This is a safe place. Um, but we, I've, I've, I've heard of it, um, that they used to do these things called like judgment houses during Halloween, where it was like a Christian, a Christian like uh, haunted house that gives you a picture of hell. And at the end, you go through it, which is terrifying, traumatizing probably, and then go, would you like to go to heaven? Here's, here's the gospel track. And of course you're saying yes. You're like, yeah, I don't want that. Um, and hear me, the fear works for a little bit, but it doesn't work long because fear can't do what love can do. And so the reminder over and over that he relate, he says, you adulterous people, when you are chasing after these things, do you know you're breaking my heart? Do you know you're turning away from the one who loves you so much? And when we understand that, it changes everything. Um, if you have the NIV Bible, maybe a footnote, it might say under the word adulterous. If you go to the footnotes, it'll say, this kind of brings up the imagery of Hosea. Uh, Hosea is a great story in the Old Testament. It's actually a wild story. Like if you've never read it, have fun. Like just the first three chapters, you're like, this is in the Bible. This is a, this is a crazy story. And it goes like this, um, because James is bringing up this imagery of adultery. And he's trying to give us this, this picture. And it's really important that we understand it. And so he says, uh, the adultery. And so he, he reminds us of Hosea. So what's Hosea? Hosea was a prophet. And God's like, hey, you're a prophet. I want you to tell my people what they've done. I, I, want, you to, I want you to tell them who I am. And he's like, amen. And he goes, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go marry a prostitute named Gomor. And he's like, what? That's what it says. He uses colorful language. But he says, yep, that's what it says. And he goes, I want you to go woo her and win her, and then I want you to marry her. It's a strange way to start the book. And then he says, I want you to have kids with her. And they have kids. They have a boy named Jezreel. Um, and then they have a girl named Lo, uh, Lo Ami, or no, Lo Ruhumah, which means uh, not loved, not the greatest name. Not the great, I'm not going to lie, not the greatest name. And then they have a son after that, and they name him Lo Ami, which means not my people. Again, not the greatest name. Um, but he's having this picture where he goes, um, Hosea, you are me in this, in this story. And my people are like Gomar. And that I have wooed them. I have, I have saved them from the bondage of slavery. Because then what happens next is that Gomar goes back to living a life that she lived before. And she went chasing after other husbands, after other men, the way she did before. And what do you expect a husband's response to be? I'll tell you what, Hosea 2 is exactly what you expect the response to be. Hosea 2, 2 says this, plead with your mother, plead for she is not my wife and I'm not her husband. 
Ooh, it's getting there. Hosea 2.12, and I will lay waste to her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest and the beasts of the field, they shall devour them. This is sounding, sounding a little bit like a Carrie Underwood song, right? Like I dug my key into the car, that pretty little souped up four wheel drive, like that whole thing, like that is Hosea 2. That is what's happening right now because it's a spouse who's been hurt and he goes, I'm going to, you know, it's what you'd expect. And again, James is giving us this imagery by calling us you adulterous people. When you go and you love the world more than me, this is how I feel. When we understand our sin, how it grieves the heart of God, it changes the way we think about sin. Because when I think about breaking the law, honesty, I, I, got a, I didn't get a speed ticket. I got a speeding warning, warning uh, a week and a half ago, driving in the middle of nowhere. I was going to Greenwood. I have no idea where I was. Got pulled over going 65 and a 55. And the guy goes, you know how fast you were going? I go, I don't even know where I am. So no, um, but I'm sure I was speeding. Like I don't, we're in the boondocks. And he goes, well, and he was very kind and gave me a warning. But did my heart break? No, my heart didn't break when he pulled me over. I was like, uh-oh. Um, but that was about all that happened. But when you, when you betray someone you love, your heart breaks. And when you realize our sin betrays God, your heart breaks for that. And so if I leave you there, that'd be pretty bad. But thank the Lord that there's a solution. And the solution honestly doesn't make sense to me either. But let's read it. Uh, we're going to read James 4, 6 through 10. And then if you have a pen or anything, I'd encourage you to underline verse 6. Circle it, underline it, star it, do whatever you want. But here it goes. How does the husband who's been wronged by the spouse, how does he respond? Verse 6. But he gives more grace. What? He gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your um, joy to gloom. You see, he's going, what's the response of someone who's been betrayed? The response of God is this, grace. Read Hosea 2, I stopped at Hosea 2.13 when he says, he went after her lovers, but he forgot, but she forgot me. Can you just hear the heartbreak in that? She went after her lovers, but she forgot me. And then here's the very next verse, Hosea 2.14 through 16. Therefore, I'm going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I'll give her back her vineyards and I'll make her a valley of anchor and a door of hope. There she'll respond as the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. And that day declares the Lord, you will call me husband. No longer will you call me master. Then in verse uh, chapter three, God tells Hosea, you need to go get your wife back. You need to go bring her back um, for she's loved by another right now. And he actually has to go and buy her back. And you would say, don't write a movie like that because it doesn't make sense. You'd be like, no, Hosea, leave, run, go away. Like she did this to you, run. That's not God's response. He gives more grace. Brennan Manning, uh, I love him. He just uh, reminds me of God's love. And he'd say this. Um, one of the greatest sins many of us commit is that we exempt ourselves from grace. 
One of the greatest sins we commit is that we exempt ourselves from grace. And here's what happens when you exempt yourself from grace. You know what you do? You exempt others from grace. It's a direct correlation. What causes fights and quarrels among you? You forgot about the grace of God. And therefore, you're quick to judge. You're quick to get angry at people. Um, Keep diving in. Um, The solution, then if I had to give you like, you know, the fill in the blanks, because we love those. Uh, The solution to our selfish pride is this, accepting the grace of God. But in this, accepting the grace of God on the cross. You see, Hosea had to go buy his wife back and, and Jesus came to come get us back. And he would die on the cross to give us the life we didn't deserve. Why? Because he loves us. So when we think about the solution to our own desires of of running away from God, his desire is to come and pay the price that we deserve. And we get what we don't deserve. And so here's what the cross does. It does two important things. I think it's so important. The cross first, it humbles you out of your pride. Jesus on the cross humbles you out of your pride. You cannot be a prideful person and be a Christian. Here's what you're saying if you're a Christian. I'm so sinful, God had to come and pay my price. There's no way you can think, I'm a pretty good guy. Uh, The God of the universe had to come pay your sin. Like, there's no way we can think that we're good. No way. Like, if you mess something up so bad, the manager or the owner of the store has to come down here and fix it, you messed up. We messed up. I messed up. The cross humbles you out of your pride. Um, A guy named Jonathan Edwards uh, had this book that none of us have probably read called Thoughts on Revival. Um, It's a book. You should read it. It's just really intriguing. Um, You just kind of get, you know, he's back in the 1700s, which is the, you know, um, probably like 1780s when he wrote this book. And all these revivals were happening around America. And so he just kind of gave some thoughts behind it. And one of the chapters I read that I loved, he said this, nothing hurts revival more than spiritual pride. He says, it destroys it so quick. And he then goes and explains what is spiritual pride and then what is spiritual humility. Um, and thankful someone smarter than me kind of organized these and, and, and changed the words to help it be a little bit more clear for us. Um, and so here's just a couple of them I'd love to read. It says, spiritual pride makes you more aware of other faults, others' faults than your own. But spiritual humility makes you far more aware of your own faults than others. Pride leads you, when you speak of others' faults, to speak in contempt of that person. But humility means that when you speak of others' faults, you do so with grief and mercy. Pride leads you to quickly separate from people you criticize or people who criticize you. You're either cold to them or you avoid them. But spiritual humility means that you stick with people in difficult situations no matter what. A proud person is dogmatic and sure about every point of belief. Proud people cannot distinguish between major and minor points because to a proud person, everything's major. Uh, In that, there's this great story of a guy named John Wesley who started like the Methodist church and a guy named George Whitfield who was an open-ear preacher. He would just go and talk and tell people about Jesus and people would listen. It wasn't like the bullhorn preacher. It was like someone just gave up a sermon and people would listen. And anyway... John Wesley got really fired up about the whole doctrine of election, predestination. He hated it, like despised it so much that him and Whitfield were best friends. Like they were really close. And he would tell people, don't listen to George. 
In fact, close your ears. Whenever you walk, whenever you walk by George Whitfield preaching, just go, la, 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 la. Um, they didn't have Twitter back then, obviously, uh, but they had the papers. And so John would write letters to George, basically saying, like, you need to not believe in the doctrine of election, or you need to not believe in this predestination. Like, again, John Wesley's making a major something that's minor, right? And it got so heated that one day they asked George. George was kind of like, hey, we don't need to debate this. Like, this isn't a thing we need to debate in public. But they asked George Whitfield. A reporter came to him and said, do you think you'll see John in heaven? And George said, no. What? (laughs) He said, no. And then he said, because he'll be much closer to the throne than I'll be. Do you see the humility that says, yeah, yeah, we disagree here. John's better than me. The way he looked at John Wesley was he, George saw his own sin and said, that guy's better than me. That is what gospel humility looks like. Now, here's the thing. If the cross humbles us out of our pride, then we'd just be a whole bunch of depressed Christians. And that's not fun. No one wants to hang out with that person. You're not inviting them to Thanksgiving. You might have to, but like you don't want to because they're just sad. And that, and, I, and I, I'm not joking, I mean, it's kind of jokingly, but if we, if we left there of just like, oh, follow Jesus and we're just going to be sad together because Jesus died for our sins because we're the worst, then I'd say that's missing the point too. Or again, because don't forget, what does it say in verse 10? Humble yourselves before the Lord. Why? And he will exalt you. So here's the cross. The cross humbles you out of your pride, but hear this, the cross loves you out of your despair. It loves you out of your despair. You cannot come and be a Christian and think I'm worthless. Time out. The God of the universe says, I loved you so much that I gave you my one and only son, the most priceless gift God gave us. What does that make you? Priceless. You cannot be someone who is not utterly loved by the God of the universe, that he gave up his one and only son. And so the cross, when Jesus dies on the cross, it does these two things that nothing else can do. It humbles you out of your pride. You cannot be a prideful person as a Christian. It just, James is saying it doesn't make sense. Something's wrong. But at the same time, you can't be a really depressed person that's going, I'm just the worst person. He goes, no, no, no. The God of the universe lovingly went to the cross for you. It wasn't begrudgingly. It was like, oh, I don't want to do this, right? No, he wanted to because he loved you. It says in Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He loves you out of your despair he humbles you out of your pride. Tim Keller would always say it this way. He'd say, um, you're more sinful than you ever dared imagine, but you're more loved than you ever could have hoped. It's a beautiful image. So let's get to the application as we're running out of time. James 4, 11 through 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against his brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law... You are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, and he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Do you see, like, if you understand the fact that we, me, you, we're the cause of fights and quarrels, and we do this because we've turned our backs on God and just wanted to solve all these desires and go to all these crazy places, which in turn is breaking the heart of God. And what God should do is, I'm done with you, but he doesn't. He says, I love you still. I forgive you. Come back to me. When you realize that, there's no way you cannot be compassionate to other people. It just can't happen. And if if it doesn't happen, it's because, again, you've exempted yourself from grace. 
Uh, Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? As God in Christ forgave you. Our motivation for loving one another is always the way Jesus loved us and how he gave himself up from us. If we focus on the cross, we focus on that, then it changes the way we treat people our neighbor, our enemy, whoever. It changes the way. You don't fight in quarrel because you're, you're, you're thinking of the best intentions of the person in front of you. You're not thinking of the worst. And uh, 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, for Christ's love compels us. It compels me. It's his love for me compels me to go. It compels me to share. And um, we'll bring up the worship team as we kind of end. I'll end on this story. Um, growing up, uh, I'm one of those Ohio people who would travel down to Hilton Head. Sorry or thank you, I don't know. Um, and my parents loved uh, the musical Les Miserables. And so I had the great privilege of listening to that for 12 hours from Ohio on down. Um, and I'm not kidding, it was like repeat. And it was like, this is great. Um, so I didn't really like Les Miserables until I got older and I actually learned the story. And then it became the most beautiful thing. Because if you, if you know the story, there's a guy named Jean Valjean who decided to steal some bread and somehow he got 20 years in prison. Don't understand that math, uh, but that's what happens. He does some other things probably in prison that kept adding to years. Um, but when he got out, he couldn't find a job because nobody wanted to hire a criminal. He had this, like the pink slip and everyone's like, no, we don't trust you. And so he finally is just walking around starving and a priest happens to come upon him and he says, hey, Come be with me. Will you come stay in my house? And so he comes. And he has a great meal for the first time in a couple of weeks. And then Jean Valjean does what he knows to do best. He steals all the priest's silverware. All of it. This is when silverware was actually silver. Um, and so he just steals everything. And he runs out of the house when the priest was sleeping. But unfortunately for Jean Valjean, he gets caught. And the soldiers bring Jean Valjean to the priest. And they say, hey, we caught this man and he clearly has all of your silver. What do you want us to do? And this is what the priest does. He says he goes back into the house and he grabs two silver candlesticks and he goes, Jean, you forgot these. I gave these to you also. And they said, he didn't steal these. I gave it all to him. And at that moment in the, in the book, that moment in the play, everything changes. Jean Valjean becomes the greatest character that's probably ever written the most compassionate person you'll ever see because he experienced radical grace. And here's the thing about grace. It can do two things. It can melt your heart like Jean Valjean or it can harden it like Javert. Javert is the other character and he's a person who's all about the law and you can't mess up the law and he's the one who put Jean Valjean in prison to begin with. At the end of it, there's a moment where Jean Valjean can finally get um, retribution. He can finally like um, get Javert after all the bad things he's done to him. And Javert's waiting for it. He goes, I know, go ahead and kill me. It's, this is time. And what does Jean Valjean do? He forgives him and he gives him grace. And Javert can't handle that. And it hardens his heart to the point that in the movie, in the show, in the, in the play, he kills himself because he can't experience grace. The greatest sin many of us experience is we exempt ourselves from grace. So here's two questions to kind of reflect on um, as we close. Does your inner thoughts towards others reflect that of a person who has been forgiven and loved by the God of the universe or does it reflect that of a judge? 
And the second one is simple. Have you truly accepted the grace of God? And you'll know by the way you love one another. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for who you are. I thank you that as I am someone who ran as far as I can from you, you ran after me. As I dug my own wells to think I knew the answer to life, um, you kindly reminded me um, that you are the fountain of living water. Thank you uh, for the grace that you have given to me and let that be a grace that we give to one another. I pray for Beaufort County that they would see people, they would see Christians truly loving one another so well that they would have to go and say, God has to be real or who is this? Why would you do this? Lord, let the way we care for each other in this room, let it be a witness to the whole town, to the whole city, to the whole county, to the whole state. We love you. We ask this all in your son's name. Amen.